The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Today's sermon is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 through 30. You can find this on page 12 of your service guide. Please read along with me. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us on our own to figure things out for ourselves or to follow our own stubborn, rebellious hearts. But Lord, you have You've given us your word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would magnify your name this morning, speak to us by your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that in this time, the spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God. 
And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a joy and an honor for me to be here with you this morning to share God's word with you. I'm grateful for my my friendship with Pastor Matt and uh, there are a few other members here that I've known for a few years and it's just been really encouraging to see what what God is is doing here. Um, So, in the context of our passage, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about John the Baptist. So he's in the middle of a discourse about John the Baptist, and you will be helped if you have your Bible or in the bulletin just to follow along as, as we go. Um, so if, if you recall from this passage, John the Baptist is in prison, and he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus up in verse 3, are you the one who was to come, or shall we look for another? And the Lord Jesus responds in verses 4 and 5 by speaking about his works, which confirmed that he was the fulfillment of multiple messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And so he sends those disciples back to John. And then in verses 9 and 11, he affirms John the Baptist when he addressed the crowd that remained. And so he can, the Lord Jesus continues to speak about John the Baptist in our passage today. And there's, there's four things that I want us to observe that the Lord Jesus speaks about. But let me first give a summary statement to kind of um, uh, summarize what the text is teaching. So the summary statement is this. The king has come calling all to believe in him. The king has come calling all to believe in him. And in view of the coming judgment, and in view of the coming judgment, to embrace him as the Father's gracious gift of salvation. It's a long sentence, but it's the summary. The king has come calling all to believe in him and in view of the coming judgment to embrace him as the father's gracious gift of salvation. So that's the summary sentence. And so here are our four points that we take from that sentence. Point number one, a word about the kingdom. And we see that in verses 12 to 15 a word about the kingdom. Number two, a word about unbelief. We see that in verses 16 through 19. Number three, a word about judgment. We see that in verses 20 to 24. And then number four, a word about salvation. We see that in verses 25 through 30. So a word about the kingdom, a word about unbelief, a word about judgment, and a word about salvation. First, a word about the kingdom. Look again at verse 12. 
The Lord says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now up front, I'll say that verse 12 is a very difficult verse to interpret. And the reason why is because you have to answer two questions that can change the meaning of the verse depending on how you answer them. So question number one is this, is the verb that our translation here translates suffered violence, is that an active verb or a passive verb? So kind of going back, is the, the kingdom of heaven is the subject. If the verb is passive, then you get suffered violence. If it's active, then it would be that the kingdom of heaven is violently or forcefully advancing. And so that's why in the ESV, it has a footnote in verse 12 that says, or coming violently. So that's the question. Question number one, is the kingdom of heaven, is it suffering violence? Is it being acted upon? Or is the kingdom of heaven violently advancing? The second question becomes, who are the violent? Who are the violent? So when it says at the end of verse 12, the violent take it by force. Who are they? Are they Christians? Are the Christians the violent ones who take heaven by force? Or is it the enemies of the cross? If it's Christians, then this verse is teaching something about the way that we should approach entering the kingdom, which is not passively, but actively or violently. We certainly see this teaching in other places, like in Matthew 13, 45, where the Lord Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the wise person who sees the kingdom of heaven for what it is, sees the greatest opportunity in the world and seizes it. That certainly should be our mindset. But if the enemies of the cross being referred to, then the idea would be that violent people are attacking the kingdom of heaven. Remember, John the Baptist is in jail and he's soon to be beheaded. And so if you interpret it that way, then verse 12 is actually Jesus' explanation for why John the Baptist is in jail. We know that John the Baptist proclaimed the kingdom of heaven as Jesus' forerunner. And so if this is true, then the way to understand the verse would be this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven violently or forcefully advances even though violent persons try to plunder it or attack it. Now, what's interesting is that both of these things are actually true. The enemies of the cross came against the kingdom of heaven. That was true then, and it's true today. And those who embrace Jesus as the Christ, we lay hold of the kingdom. So it may even be a play on words by Jesus to communicate both ideas. But the main point about the kingdom in this passage is found in the next verses. Look at verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When it says that he is Elijah who is to come, this is a prophecy, a reference to a prophecy in Malachi 4, 
which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Based on those verses, the Jews read it literally and expected a return of Elijah. If you'll recall from 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah is one of the only people in the Bible who was directly taken to God. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so the way that the Jews understood Malachi 4 is that Elijah would make an actual return to the earth. But Jesus is teaching here that it was more symbolic than literal and that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And this is confirmed in Matthew 17, verse 10, where the disciples ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And it says, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So when you put it all together, what you see is the Lord Jesus. He's saying that all that the prophets, all that the law had predicted, all that the Old Testament was looking forward to, the Messiah that Israel was waiting for, all the preparations that had been made, Jesus is saying the king is here. He's here. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord Jesus says, I'm him. I'm the fulfillment. <laughs> you're looking at him if you're willing to accept it. He's calling on them to exercise faith. He who has ears, let him hear. Not physical ears, but ears of spiritual discernment. None of this is going to make sense apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So the king is here, the very one that Israel said that they were waiting for. He has come, and you would think that that would cause them to rejoice. But there was one big problem, and that problem was Unbelief. Unbelief. That brings us to our next point, a word about unbelief. Look at verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So as the Lord Jesus reflects on his hearers, he gives them an analogy about children to illustrate his point. And the point is very clear. The point is unbelief is never satisfied. Unbelief is never satisfied satisfied. The children want to play a game. Let's play the wedding game. <laughs> and the children say, no, we don't want to play the wedding game. So then the kids say, okay, well, you don't want to play the wedding game? Let's play the funeral game then. No, 
We don't want to play the funeral game. So nothing the kids suggested was satisfactory to the other group of kids. Children, all the children in the room right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, I see, I see some children. Yeah, my children, y'all better be, okay, all right. Yep, all the kids. Kids, have you ever experienced this where you wanted to play a game with your brother or your sister or your friend and they said, no, I don't want to play that game. If you're a kid and you've experienced that, raise your hand. Okay, yeah, I've experienced that too. It's not fun, is it? Have you ever experienced where you said, okay, all right, we don't have to play that game. Let's play this game. And then your brother or your sister or your friend said, no, I don't want to play that game either. You ever, you ever experienced that? Yeah, I've experienced it too. Okay, kids, the next time your brother or your sister or your friend says, no, I don't want to play that game, you know what you say to them? You say, you're in the Bible. <laughs> and you can show them in Matthew 11 that, that they're actually in the Bible. It's not satisfied. Je Jesus compares himself and John the Baptist to two types of games. What kind of prophet do you want? Do you want somebody rugged and serious? That's John the Baptist. No, we don't want John the Baptist. Okay. Do you want the prophet that comes with grace and performs healings, who goes to weddings, turns water into wine? No, we don't want that kind of prophet. He's too, he's too cheerful. He's among the people too much. We don't want the gracious prophet. Okay, so you don't want the stern locust-eating prophet from the desert, and you don't want the gracious water-to-wine-turning prophet, then which one? You're not going to accept anything, and that's the point. Unbelief is never satisfied, and that's the problem with the people is the unbelief. The problem is not with the prophets. The problem's with the people. And just, that was the case then, and it's still the case today. Just, just, Think about the grace of God in the different kinds of preachers that he sends. He sends all kinds of preachers. Old ones, young ones, cool ones, not so cool ones, academic, down to earth. Well, none of that matters to the unbelieving heart. I see this in, in the culture. I come from hip-hop culture all the time. They hear from a dude who's not hip-hop, and they're like, ah, oh, he's corny. Nobody want to hear anything from him. Okay? Then they hear from somebody who is hip-hop, and they're like, ah, he's too hip-hop. How can a preacher be hip-hop? Right? And so it's like, okay, they'll never actually be satisfied. Unbelief is never satisfied. Christians, you ever try to talk to an unsaved family member about the Lord, and no matter what you say, they won't hear you, they still won't accept it, don't be surprised by that. Unbelief is never satisfied. That's what unbelief does. At the end of the day, it takes a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to open somebody's eyes to the truth of the gospel. That's my testimony. My mom argued with me for years about coming to Christ. Why don't you come to church? Why don't you believe in Jesus? And I told her, Mom, stop arguing with me about this. It's fine if it works for you. That's great. Don't try to push off your religion on me. And I told her, 
Stop talking to me about it. I will never become a Christian. That's what I said to her. Praise be to God. He's gracious and has a sense of humor. (laughs) Because never in a million years would I ever imagine that I would be standing before you right now proclaiming the same Jesus that I rejected for all of my teen years and into my early adult life. And so just just, just remember, this, this is a call to prayer. It's a call to prayer for the unbelievers around us. We're never going to argue anybody into the kingdom. What has to happen for our unbelieving family members and friends is the same thing that happened to us. God is going to have to sovereignly open their eyes. And God is gracious. Nobody is too far removed from the hand of God's grace to be able to snatch them up. And so continue to pray. My mom prayed for me. It was, it was over 14 years that she prayed, seeing no fruit. If anything, all she saw was more and more deeper rebellion on my part. And God, in his grace and kindness, eventually brought me to himself. So don't give up praying for your unbelieving family members and friends. Now, if this is you, if, if, if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus and there's nothing anybody can say to change your mind, you might want to ask yourself, but why is that? Why is it that there's nothing that anybody can say to you to change your mind about Jesus? Have you not been wrong about other things before? Are you not even open to the possibility that you might be wrong about this? Don't be like unbelieving Israel who could never be satisfied no matter who God sent to them. Notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 23. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Israel is rejecting both John the Baptist and Jesus. And Jesus says, even so, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. Jesus, or or John, was a mighty prophet who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy as Jesus' forerunner. And we know this because Jesus said up in verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. So Jesus is doing the very things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, then that confirms John's ministry as his forerunner. And so Jesus is saying, despite your not being satisfied with either John or me, that doesn't change what I'm doing and how that testifies that what I'm saying is true. In other words, your unbelief does not change who God is. All unbelief does is seal your judgment before a holy God. And that's what we see in our next point, a word about judgment. Look at verse 20. He says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In these verses, we learn at least three things about judgment. Number one, there will be a judgment day. There will be 
a judgment day. Verse 22 and verse 24, the Lord Jesus assumes a day of judgment. The time is coming at the end of this age when every single person who has ever lived will stand before God. This is taught everywhere in the Bible. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Acts 17. He says, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has fixed a day. It's not a matter of if there will be a judgment day, but when. It is a certainty. And what Jesus says about the cities that he did uh, miracles in is, it's not going to go well for you in that day. That's what he's saying. Whenever we see that word woe, you see that woe to you? Whenever we see that woe, that should make us pause. Because when Jesus says woe, he's acting in his prophetic office. This is one of the most common aspects of Old Testament prophets. That is the pronouncement of blessings or beatitudes and woes or curses. And we see that Jesus had already given a a blessing up in verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, here he's giving woes. And I cannot imagine hearing anything worse than these words from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Woe to you. He's saying you're done. Your judgment is certain. And it's really just a preview of what Jesus is going to say on the last day before sending them to eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Often unbelievers try to deny that this reality of judgment or a final judgment is true. But I believe that deep down, it's something that actually this final justice is something that even unbelievers long for, even if they don't know it. A while back in the news, we saw the news of uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who was convicted of, of trafficking young girls. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because the, he wasn't brought to trial before he, he ended up killing himself in jail. And, and I remember looking at the comments online and just seeing how outraged people were uh, because they were like, man, he's, he, did, he did these horrible things and he didn't even get brought to trial. He got to escape. He got to take the easy way out, right, through suicide. He's never going to be brought to justice. Well, from a biblical worldview, we know that he did not get the easy way out at all, right? It's... So, so the, the, this, the reason why they were upset is because there's, a, there's this, in the image of God, the way that he's created us, he, he's created us with a desire for justice, for things to be made right. And when that doesn't happen, it, it just, it gets people riled up and angry. In this, his sermon on the final judgment, John, Jonathan Edwards makes the point, 
about the judgment, final judgment being agreeable to reason. And I think it's a really helpful quote. So it's an extended quote, but I think it's helpful. So I'm going to read it. He says this. He says, though justice sometimes takes place in this world, yet how often do injustice, cruelty, and oppression prevail? How often are the righteous condemned and the wicked acquitted and rewarded? How common is it for the virtuous and the pious to be depressed and for the wicked to be advanced? How many of the thousands of the best men have suffered intolerable cruelties merely for their virtue and piety and in this world have had no help, no refuge to fly to? This world is very much ruled by the pride, covetousness, and passions of men. Now, he, he continues, how reasonable is it to suppose that God, when he shall come and put an end to the present state of mankind, will, in an open, public manner, the whole world being present, rectify all these disorders? and that he will bring all things to a trial by a general judgment in order that those who have been oppressed may be delivered, that the righteous cause may be pleaded and vindicated, and wickedness, which has been approved, honored, and rewarded, may receive its due disgrace and punishment, that the proceedings of kings and earthly judges may be inquired into by him whose eyes are as a flame of fire, and that the public actions of men may be publicly examined and recompensed according to what they deserve. How agreeable is it to divine wisdom thus to order things, and how worthy of the supreme governor of the world, end quote. You see what he's saying? He's saying it is, when, when we look around the world and we see all the injustices and all the things that where, where, where the guilty go free and, and the innocent are condemned. The, the, the fact that you have uh, legal organizations whose sole purpose is to help get people who have been wrongfully convicted off of death row. The fact that all of these things happen in this world. How fitting is it that God has set a day where he's going to right every wrong, where he's going to take every injustice and address it, right? All, all, all the, the crooked paths will be made straight. And he's going to do it publicly where everybody can see. And, and, and the man, Christ Jesus, is the one by whom he's going to judge the world and all things will be made right. There will be a judgment day. It's only right. Observation number two, there will be degrees of punishment. There will be degrees of punishment. Verse 22, more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. Verse 24, more tolerable for Sodom. Everyone will not receive the same punishment, though hell will be unspeakably awful for anyone who goes there. What people experience in hell will differ according to the degree of their sin before God. Just as there's degrees of guilt, there's also degrees of punishment. And that makes sense. That, that's just, that's fitting, that is right. 
Tyre and Sidon were Old Testament cities that were known for their wickedness. The same with Sodom. And the Lord Jesus is saying that those places were guilty, but that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were even more guilty because they saw the miracles of Jesus and didn't repent. This connects to what he says in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Why is that true? Why is it, why, how is it that the, the, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist? Well, they're, great, they're greater because, and that, that's us, we're greater because we have the greater privilege of experiencing the fulfillment of all the things that John the Baptist was merely pointing to. So what we have as just your regular, ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christian is greater than what John the Baptist, who Jesus says, there's no one under heaven greater than this guy, right? Because of what we, uh, what we have in the gospel, well, in the same way, just as believers under gospel preaching have greater privileges than John, unbelievers under gospel preaching have greater judgment and greater condemnation. So there will be degrees of punishment. And then observation number three, God will judge according to his perfect knowledge. God will judge according to his perfect knowledge. Look again at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then further down in verse 23, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. All human judges are limited in their knowledge. They can only judge based on the evidence that they have available to them. And apart from them actually being there when the crime was committed, their knowledge is limited. Not so with God. God knows all things. He knows all actions and he knows all the motives behind the actions. And not only that, God not only perfectly knows what we do and why we do it, but he also perfectly knows what we would have done had the circumstances been different. He knows all things, all things actual and all things possible. And so what we learn from these verses is that God, God, he has the ability to judge based on what we would have done had the circumstances been different. You know, a lot of times we say, say things like, oh, man. If I was alive back then, I would have never done that. Really? I say things like that all the time, right? If I was alive in the slavery days, they wouldn't. Man, I don't know what I would have did if I was alive back then. I have, I have no idea. None of us do. We don't know. We don't know what we would have done. But God knows. God knows exactly what we would have done had the circumstances been different. And He's going to judge accordingly. Sobering thought. Sobering thought. Right after giving this sobering word of judgment, we see, beginning in verse 25, a word about salvation. Look again at verse 25. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So when the Lord Jesus sees that people are rejecting him, he's not confused at all about why this is the case. The Lord Jesus is not an impotent Savior wringing his hands in heaven, wondering why people won't accept him. No, he knows that even his rejection was part of God's sovereign plan. In fact, he says that God has hidden these things from the wise. In 1 Corinthians 1.20, it says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Lord Jesus and his upcoming death was a stumbling block to Jews, both then and now. Remember earlier in verse 6, the Lord Jesus says, Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. Brothers and sisters, if you are not stumbling over Jesus this morning, if Jesus is not a stumbling block to you, if when you hear the name of the Lord Jesus, it's the most precious thing to you, if that's true for you, give praise to God because that is a gift. It it is a gift from the Lord that you love the Lord. You loving the Lord is a gift from the Lord. That's what the Lord Jesus is teaching. He says, verse 26, Yes, Father, for this was, or such was, your gracious will. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian this morning, you have been chosen to have the Father revealed to you. And it's, it's Jesus' sovereignty. And apart from God sovereignly making that decision, you or I would have never chosen Jesus. That is reason for us to rejoice. I give God praise that I woke up this morning still a Christian. I've seen people who I've prayed with for years in in small groups together, doing ministry together, walk away from God and just leave him, abandon him, and become apologists against Christianity. I'm seeing it right now with a dear friend of mine. And when I think, what's the difference between me and him? The only difference is the grace of God. It's nothing in me. If it were up to me, I would have left the faith a long time ago. 
It is a miracle of God's grace that we are still Christians and we ought to give God praise for it this morning. And that's what the Lord Jesus is communicating. It is a gift. Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you know the Father this morning? Do you love him? Do you serve him? Not perfectly. None of us are perfect. But do you regret that you don't serve him as you would like? Give praise to Jesus because Jesus made the choice for you, for you. Jesus made the choice to reveal the Father to you. If he did nothing else for us, if he just did that one thing, just revealed the Father to us, if that was it, we would have, that's enough for us to praise God for all eternity. And yet he gives more grace upon more grace upon more grace. But let us never forget that crucial, simple lesson. We know God because he first knew us. We love God because he first loved us and he sent his son to die for us. This is meant to humble us. We have a sovereign savior. But then as we close, notice finally that we also have a gracious savior. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the Lord Jesus. After making all of these grandiose, big, heavy, weighty statements about judgment and about the sovereignty of God. He doesn't make choices like it's one or the other, but in the very next verse, he casts wide the net. He says, come to me. So even, you know, we're the ones who like to quibble with, well, wait a second, if, if he's sovereign and he elects people, then, then, then why should we evangelize or why should we pray? Like, like we're the ones who ask those kinds of questions. The Lord Jesus is not asking those kinds of questions, right? He, he's proclaiming it. God is sovereign. You only know the Father because the Son has made the sovereign choice to reveal him. That, 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 that there's, a, there's, a, there's a limitation because God the Son does not reveal the Father to everybody. But everybody that the Son reveals the Father to, they come to him, right? So that's sovereignty of God. But then in the very next verse, come to me. <laughs> come to me. The offer, the offer is open. Come to Jesus. Jesus sends out the call. 
And notice, notice what he says. He says, to all who labor. To all who labor. Jesus is talking to people who are tired. Is anybody tired? Amen. Amen. And I, and I don't just mean from lack of sleep, because we got an extra hour last night. That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about, right? This is for tired people. Tired of your sin. Anybody tired of indwelling sin? You want to follow God, but you have this principle within you prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Anybody tired? Tired of the pain. Whatever kind of pain it may be. It may be physical pain. It may be the pain of broken relationships. The pain of being sinned against. Anybody tired? The pain of a difficult marriage. Tired of the the, the depression. Tired of the struggles with mental health. And you know what you want to think and what you should be thinking, but it's just not it's just not working right. Tired of the aging process and the pain that comes with that. Tired of messing up with the same sin over and over again. Thought thought I would be done with that sin years ago. And yet here we are. Tired. Tired of trying to earn God's favor. Tired of just trying to trying to be the good Christian. Or just do being the good girl. Doing the right thing, do, do, doing the, all the right quiet times, all the serving in youth ministry, whatever the case may be, of just working on the treadmill, trying to get God to be pleased with me. Just, just tired. If you feel that, any of that, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me is what the Lord Jesus says. And you see that phrase, heavy laden? just means being weighed down, weighed down, weighed down by the fallen world around us, weighed down by a sense of guilt. Just any, any, anybody had that just kind of prevailing, low-grade sense of guilt that just kind of follows you <laughs> throughout the day, right? Just that voice in the back of your mind saying, look at you, blew it once again, right? Like, really? Anybody have imposter syndrome? The sense like, man, one of these days, they all going to figure out that I'm a fraud, right? Just kind of have that voice chirping. Jesus said, if you're heavy laden, if you're just weighed down by the guilt, by the shame even, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And I just want to say a brief word about shame before we close. because So shame is something that has become a bad word in our culture, right? So, so one of the most popular ways in our culture to shout somebody down who disagrees about anything is to accuse them of shaming somebody. And so you have fill-in-the-blank shaming. They put 
any, any word before shaming in order to, act, actually, they're actually shaming people who do that. Like, it's, it's weird. So the, you're shaming people for shaming, but, okay. Anyway, so, so in our culture, it's, it's like, if, you, if you're someone who, if somebody likes to eat worms, right, let's just say, somebody likes eating worms, this is for you kids. I'm not talking about gummy worms either. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the actual dirty worms, right? If somebody likes to eat worms, and, then, and they publicize it. They put up YouTube videos like, I eat worms, woohoo. And if somebody says, you know what, that's disgusting. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a whole army of people saying, don't worm shame that person. Like, that's kind of what we do in our culture. It's kind of ridiculous. But, so I'm not talking about that extreme, but biblically, shame actually serves a good purpose. And let me explain what I mean. In Jeremiah 6.15, it says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. So God in the Old Testament condemning his people for not having the proper sense of shame. And that is the, the conscience which gives us the awareness of our guilt before God. And that mechanism is actually a good thing, biblically, because of what it's meant to do. What it's meant to do, see, the problem is we have all kinds of wrong responses to it. And let me just, as a sidebar, say that, so I'm not talking about the shame that a person may feel if they've been sinned against in horrible ways in the past. So don't, I'm not telling anyone uh, like to, to, that you should be feeling shame about what somebody else did to you. Do not hear me saying that. But what I am saying is that everybody, universally, Christian or non-Christian, has this realization, this actual realization, I've done something wrong, okay? And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a feeling that accompanies it. And what happens is in our culture, we do all kinds of things to cover up that feeling. So some people will self-medicate in order to try to get rid of the sense of shame. Other people will double down on the sin and say, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to glory in the shame, what the Apostle Paul calls He's in, in Philippians, right? People who glory in their shame. So, so rather than recognizing this is wrong and repenting of it, saying, you know what? No, no, no. It's not, not only is it not wrong, but I'm going to feel pride about it, right? That's, that, that, that's a response, a wrong response to shame. Well, shame is not to be gloried in. It's not to be wallowed in. And it's also not to be ignored. What shame, what we should do is we should acknowledge it. Shame is to be acknowledged and it is to be taken to God. And it is to be taken to the one, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross to address our shame. Notice what it says when he says, come to me. What does it mean to come to Jesus? What well, we learn in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So to come to Jesus and to believe in Jesus, he's not saying two different things there. He's saying the same thing. 
to come to Jesus is to believe in him, to turn to him, to embrace him as your Lord, as your Savior, as the most important person in the universe. Children, children, thank you for trekking with me, children. I know it's been long. I want to say one more thing to you kids specifically, all the kids, yes. The best thing that you could ever do is put all your trust in Jesus. There is nobody, nobody in this world. I don't care how great you think somebody is, and maybe they are great, but they are not great compared to Jesus. And Jesus did what we could never, ever do. All the bad stuff that we do, kids, Jesus came and he got punished. Jesus took the spanking that we deserve for all the bad stuff that we do. And if you believe in Jesus and you can believe in him today, so don't think, kids, that you have to wait until you get old like your parents or your grandparents. You don't, you don't have to wait till you're old. Jesus will accept you now if you believe in him. And that's not just true for kids. <laughs> it's true for big kids like us as well. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, he says, I will never cast out. He says, my yoke is easy. In Jewish literature, yoke refers to obligations that people had. The yoke of the law, the yoke of commandments. Jesus says, don't take the yoke of the Pharisees. Those, those yoke that, like that's weighing you down with burdens that are too heavy to carry. Jesus says, my yoke is easy by comparison. The yoke of the law is to keep working, but to never make true progress. But to come to Christ is, is to recognize what John Bunyan recognized in his famous quote where he says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. The king has come, calling all to believe in him. And in view of the coming judgment to embrace him as the Father's gracious gift of salvation. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, crucified, risen, and exalted. And we thank you for the reality that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we pray that even now, even as we, as we continue to sing, Lord, that for any unbelievers who are in our midst, that you might be, be at work by your spirit, convincing them of the truthfulness of these things. And Father, for those of us who have trusted, help us to continue to trust to continue to come to Jesus, to turn from sin, to trust more and more in the Savior. And we thank you for your promise that you've began a good work in us and you will carry it on to completion until 
the day of Christ Jesus. We give you praise and thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen.